Welcome to Public Intellectual. Rather than bringing you Blue Apron ads, because Blue Apron has wildly high health and safety and labor violations for a company of its size, you can look that up. Public Intellectual instead brings you bonus episodes and a blog for its supporters. If you would like to become one, please go to patreon.com slash publicintellectual. I do apologize for doing another episode that mentions Jordan Peterson. I had planned to ask our guest about other things, but we had to delay the interview a couple times due to logistical issues. And in the meantime, he published two pieces, one that explicitly dealt with Peterson and one that was about the larger issue of masculinity in crisis and referenced him. And then Peterson responded over Twitter by essentially challenging Mishra to a duel, so we had to talk about it. Pankaj Mishra's book, The Age of Anger, is the antidote to the defenders of the Enlightenment like Peterson and Steven Pinker, who are suddenly so big now. It examines the gap between what modernity and development promised and what it actually delivered, and it explores how that is tied to our extreme age. So probably you've been made aware of the fact that Jordan Peterson um, challenged you to a fight on Twitter late last night. Um, he uh, he took your article in the New York Review of Books very very personally. Yeah, I I was made aware of it this morning, um, and I was I was surprised because I didn't think for a man who tells everyone or tells his followers at least to toughen up and man up is so fragile himself. <laughs> um, it seems like his exhortations to toughen up are primarily aimed at himself. But this is a very sort of, um, you know, you hurt his honor. This is very um, duel at dawn kind of thing. Um it's a there's a there's a very strong masculine tradition of of this sort of thing. Oh yeah, absolutely, and I think you know he 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 very deliberately wants to position himself in this lineage of brave warriors um, who will not refuse an invitation to 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 fight and will actually um, in this case will extend an invitation to fight. Um, so this is this is very much a man imprisoned by a certain fantasy of a hyper-masculine world where men were allowed to do this kind of thing all the time, which is to express their aggressive instincts. And it's such a shame that modernity has constrained them, inhibited them in the way it has. Were you surprised that he called you a racist? Oh yeah, I mean, I think you know uh, this is this is one tactic I've come across before with Neil Ferguson is that in order to claim the moral prestige of um, of of the victim, they often accuse you of calling them a racist when you haven't you haven't actually done anything of the sort. In the case of Ferguson. It was very clear, and I said so, that the man is not consistent enough 
in his worship of power to be a racist. Uh, one moment he's talking about America, the other moment he's talking about China. And this uh, notion that, you know, Peterson or, 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 or him calling me a racist, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. It basically doesn't make any sense. But it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's very, it's a very clever tactic. So as to make themselves seem the victim. He's part of a, I don't know if movement is the right word, but certainly a collection of men who are holding themselves up to be the defenders of the enlightenment or Western civilization. And they never quite say who they're defending the enlightenment from, but I'm, I'm guessing that it's uh, sort of feminists and uh, any sort of effort at decolonization of the canon or uh, history or any, any of these things. But, you know, Steven Pinker is obviously another sort of um, example of these, uh, these men who sort of heroically take up the mantle of let's defend the enlightenment without, I guess, truly understanding um, the yeah. complexity of, of that era. I think it's probably, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting point um, that all of these men coming often uh, with or, or having very different views. Um, I mean, I think Stephen Pinker has a very different view of what the Enlightenment means than, say, Jordan Peterson, but both are curiously defensive about this great event in the history of Western thought. So I think it's probably useful to think of them as essentially committed to a certain idea of the West in which white men were dominant. White men were responsible for all the major breakthroughs in, in, in uh, science and, and they were the ones capable of individual reason. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very specific idea of Western achievement being primarily a white male achievement. And that is something that they feel is under threat from various aggressive minorities, women, ethnic groups, religious groups, immigrants, and, and so on. So, so, so this, this, this particular world that they have built up over the years, uh, the world that they've theorized about, um, we had the Enlightenment, and then we had the Industrial Revolution, and then we fought these wars with these fascists and and communists, uh, and we won. This this particular narrative, I think, from Plato to NATO, as as someone put it, in which the Enlightenment features as a as a great great landmark. This is what they are primarily interested in. I don't think they are really interested in understanding what the Enlightenment was, how complex and diverse the phenomena that we call the Enlightenment was. They're just not interested in, in, in nuance of that kind. They want to claim it as part of a Western exceptionist narrative. And it seems, like, as you say, the, the, the Pinker approach to the Enlightenment is very different from the Peterson approach to the Enlightenment. But the, the and then there's the sort of less cloaked, defense of Western civilization that goes on within the alt-right movement. Um, they talk very explicitly about trying to save the university system um, and uh, the sort of um, 
you know, the, the Greek foundation of, um, philosophy and the, the European foundation of literature and, and so on and so forth. Um, but it's interesting how they all have become sort of bedfellows without being willing to acknowledge that in the in the way that Steven Pinker has become a figure among the alt-right as being a hero to them. But of course, he, he refuses to acknowledge um, why his ideas might be useful to them. Oh, absolutely. I think they, um, uh, someone like Pinker may not even be aware of just how um, hospitable his ideas are to that 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 kind of uh, far-right worldview I don't think he's, he's, he's simply aware of the fact um, he's, he's so caught up in this adoration of the enlightenment and this uh, or what he thinks is the enlightenment um, but I think it's this this kind of synergy between a uh, muscular liberal, between a kind of muscular liberalism and the alt-right, both of them insisting on the moral and intellectual superiority of Western civilization. I think we've seen this for a while. I mean, I've, I've argued uh, in the past and recently too that so much of what we see today uh, in terms of political populism of the Trump kind and also in this country, in, in, in Britain and in, in also in, in Western Europe, was preceded by a kind of intellectual backlash amongst um, writers, academics. There's a very interesting essay uh, published in 2005, which I've referred to in the past, called White Man, comma, What Now? It's by a German, it's a well-regarded German novelist. And he, he talks about how we may have over-invested in, 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 in reason, individual reason, and that we now feel ourselves uh, very inferior to these rising powers around the world. And it's also very sexualized. The language is very sexualized at how um, asexual we feel before these barbaric peoples who are claiming their right to be considered um powerful and and and, and smart um, so this 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 notion that we are being besieged by these these people who have obviously historically been um, either voiceless or silenced this feeling has been around for quite a long time and and some of some surprising people have have articulated it in in in, in their works and I feel that um, 9-11, the terrorist attacks of, of, of that particular day, and then the following setbacks and humiliations in, um, in, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, um, and then the financial crisis, they all come as a series of blows to this, this particular intellectual self-esteem, so dependent on thinking of, of, of the white West as superior and, 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 and dominant. Um, and this is, in a way, I mean, in, 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 uh, it would be interesting to trace uh, a kind of genealogy of this kind of writing that we see today with Peterson and, and Pinker and to connect it to some of, the, some of the figures in the 1990s and 2000s, people who were 
talking about um, essentially this 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 fear of being swamped by um, minorities and their claims. Yeah, it's interesting that there's at the moment a sort of rehabilitation amongst the left of George W. Bush um, in the sense that, you know, uh, it's not like most of the left put up a huge fight against the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq uh, in the first place. But certainly there's something about Trump that has made the left bizarrely nostalgic for George W. Bush, despite the fact that he was um, a a nightmare of a president (laughs) and has entered us into an era of endless war. Um, But uh, it's strange how Trump has become this, um, in, in the American imagination, like this starting point as if he weren't the continuation of policies that have been put in place for for decades in the way that people are looking at Peterson and and so on as um, starting points of a new movement. But really, it's just a continuation of of, um, an intellectual tradition and and, um, thought processes uh, that have been going on for decades. I think that's a very important point, um, which is that we have to recognize, we have to acknowledge these incredibly important continuities between Trump and the presidents that that preceded him. Also, you know, we, we just talked about intellectual continuities, but the fact that Trump has radicalized certain tendencies within American foreign policy, um, and of course, of course, domestic uh, domestic policy. So many of the programs that he's that he's now pursuing. Um, are a continuation, are a radicalization of policies that were put in place, if not by George W. Bush, then by Bill Clinton. Uh, the whole kind of national security state, the whole the whole regime of 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 mass incarceration, all these things um, were put in place a long time ago. So this is this sort of cult or these uh, new cults of. George W. Bush uh, are, are simply a way of refusing or are simply a refusal to acknowledge um, just how bankrupt so much of mainstream American thinking have been, has been on a variety, on a range of issues. And it's just, it's just the saddest thing to behold at, at, at this point, because, I mean, as you say, George W. Bush was a utterly disastrous uh, president, both domestically and, of course, in his foreign policy misadventures. But I think, you know, um, the people who were in charge then editorially, people who were making important decisions about what gets published, what gets printed, uh, let's not forget they are still in charge. So a true intellectual moral reckoning with those years is really only happening in small magazines. It's happening on the margins. It's not started to happen yet in the mainstream media, and it will not happen until the people who are in charge, who are often complicit in these foreign policy disasters and domestic policy disasters, unless they are unless they are out. Um, I feel this kind of um, sinister cults of George W. Bush would would continue to reap. Would, would, would reappear. 
you you um you talk a little bit about um how charming i guess is the word that um obama and clinton were to the point where the left was willing to overlook the actual policy decisions that they were making um and still there has been there's there was definitely questioning of um clinton's record back when hillary was running um and so that came up uh back into the conversation about, well, what did he actually do? And, you know, the the mass incarceration and that sort of stuff came back on the table. But we haven't had a kind of reckoning about Obama's administration and what they did as far as mass deportations and uh, drone warfare and, and so on. It's it's just not part of the intellectual conversation in America. Um, is it really just that, you know, the, he, I remember reading so much about how, you know, Obama read books and people were so excited that Obama went to bookstores and, and bought books. <laughs> and that seemed to just sort of charm people into completely ignoring what he was doing. You know, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think he was he was a very uh, seductive embodiment of a kind of neoliberal chic um, in, in that he was, you know, incredibly suave, um, very well read. He was reading the kind of books that people who read The New Yorker uh, want to read or, or, or do read. So there was an immediate affinity with him and his personality and his worldview, which was deeply apolitical. I mean, it, 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 it just failed to contend with his position as the world's most powerful man and the daily uh, atrocities he was he was called upon to commit in that particular role, you know, uh, sending out, um, uh, 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 identifying people to be to be killed uh, every morning. This this kind of thing, and of course, a lot of a um, lot of um, we know that a lot of people who just happen to be standing next to the, the the targets of the drone attacks were also killed in the process, uh, hundreds, thousands of them. But this did not seem to matter. This did not seem to matter because Obama was someone you could relate to. And certainly for the liberal intelligentsia, uh, he was an incredibly seductive figure. And, and it's also true that he was coming after uh, George W. Bush, who expressed no interest um, whatsoever in the liberal intelligentsia or, or made no no made no real claims that he was he was one of uh, or one of them or wanted to be one of them um, so that's um, I feel that those those two presidents um, Bill Clinton and, and Obama presided over a period of intense depoliticization in in the United States, and and I mean I think you know as a as 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 someone who, who visits the country often, who feels very invested in it, uh, who feels very inspired by many of its writers and thinkers, it's been very disappointing to watch this because you know the the people that I've admired, whether it's I've just been reading Elizabeth Hardwick's um, essays. Um, the, I mean, she's 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 one of one of one of many who were just extremely skeptical of high office of people in in positions of power, and that was the general attitude among writers, journalists, intellectuals 
back in the 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 fifties and sixties and seventies. It's 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 very it's very hard to find a writer and 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 and, and the writers who did express warm feelings towards the president or towards any administration were quickly criticized. I mean, I remember John Dos Passos being 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 raked over the coals by Edmund Wilson for um, expressing, you know, his 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 admiration for I think it was the Eisenhower administration. Um, so there was a period, you know, of, of, of brief of a brief infatuation with with JFK, but even that didn't last very long. Um, so it's been it's been really um, surprising and disappointing to see how people gave Obama and little Bill Clinton a, a free pass. Um, I mean, Toni Morrison describing Bill Clinton as the first black uh, president it, at one level it's just shocking i mean this is a man who caused the greatest damage of all the presidents including right-wing ones uh, to the african-american community do you think that it was clinton that 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 change happened for um i mean obviously i don't think it would have been uh reagan necessarily uh amongst the left but do you think that it was that that change as far as because you you write about that um, in your London Review of Books piece about um, Coates's would we were eight years in power um, about his uh, uh, being kind of seduced by by proximity to power not in a way of like you know I, I forget exactly how you put it but it was it was m- more. Um, uh, graceful than what I'm trying to say right at this second. But um, but when did that change as far as the left being kind of seduced in that way or glamorized in that way by by the administrations and power? I think it, it certainly started with Bill Clinton. I mean, he, you know, Reagan Frost was from some other era altogether. He was really from the from the 1950s um, and he was a very old president. And, and I think Clinton like Tony Blair in, in, in Britain, brought a kind of freshness and energy. Uh, he had all those baby boomer tastes in music and Fleetwood Mac and all that sort of thing. So he, he, he certainly represented a very attractive change from these presidents like Ronald Reagan uh, and George, the, the George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, but at the same time, I think something else happened during his um, tenure, which was that the Cold War ended. And I think there was a general euphoria. And in retrospect, it it looks more and more like a state of ideological intoxication unleashed by the collapse of um, America's most formidable rival, the Soviet Union, not just the collapse, but a kind of uh, fragmentation humiliating fragmentation and then of course uh, the great dependence of Russia on American aid and American technocratic expertise and I think it was in that moment that this new narrative of American power emerged unchallenged American power and uh, really, in a way, outlining that narrative, articulating it was this, again, uh, a very charming, articulate man, very well educated, um, 
and he did it he did it extremely well uh, to the point of as i say seducing a lot of people into thinking that okay this was the way to go that history had really ended and that what we needed to do was fine tune our society and essentially deal with the problems they have and if they are going to be dealt with through mass incarceration or oh, sure why not um so i think uh, there was a kind of larger belief entrenched in the notion of american power and american grandeur after the fall of the uh, fall of the uh, berlin wall and the end of the cold war that assisted clinton in 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 sort of becoming the figure that he did i'm wondering how much taste has to do with this in the sense of like one of the reasons that bill clinton was seen as cool was his um taste in music and also some of the reasons that obama was cool was because of his taste in books like there's something about the sort of consumerist society in america where who you are is very much sort of based on who you're listening to and what you're reading and identifying with other people based on if you also like this television show that i'm that i watch um yeah, I don't. That's not a fully formed thought, but it just sort of came to me. No, it's it's it's, it's hugely. It's I think it's hugely important. Um, this notion of identification with a powerful man who shares your tastes in 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 music and 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 books, and is someone you can easily relate to. Now, this is this has become a a, a very very powerful. um source of their uh, source of their appeal which is i think again i mean it's 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 deeply apolitical because it it's just would not acknowledge the fact that these are also people taking life and death decisions all the time uh, these are people who are really on 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 top of a murderous military machine these these very simple facts i mean you know uh, uh can get obscured by this kind of cultural personal identification that you know here is someone who's essentially gone through the same university education system who's had their bourgeois taste formed in the same sort of way and i think what in 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 uh, many ways trump has exposed is this uh, infatuation of a what was essentially always a minority within the united states uh with this particular elite that had been in power for too long and and i think he has very successfully very shrewdly managed to stoke the resentment of this particular liberal elite that had been brewing for a, for a, for a, for a very long time uh, and he was the one who was actually made it politically um, politically consequential i wanted to talk a bit about your uh, guardian piece about masculinity um masculinity is such a it's such a hot topic right now but it's always sort of written about and talked about in this way of um 
how we should raise our sons. And I think that's like the the cover article of New York Magazine at the moment is like, how do we how do we raise our sons? Um, which is a, a kind of indicative of the way I think American culture thinks about these issues of gender and so on as if um, two parents can interfere with centuries of, uh, of subconscious and conscious training of what gender is supposed to look like and, and so on and so forth. Um, that, that a person can personally negotiate with, um, with the patriarchy. Um, so when you were asked to write about masculinity, um, I mean, it fits really well with your book, The Age of Anger. Um, but there does seem to, seem to be something very diluted about our thinking in America that we have an individual responsibility or individual power um, to undo these things um, ourselves just by making the right uh, sort of decisions and choices. No, I think, you know, that is a, that is a characteristically American illusion and I suppose bred by the fact of having this vast continent to explore and, and, and conquer is so much rooted in, in a particular American experience. I think most countries, most societies with their burden of history, with their weight of tradition, uh, are not so open-ended in their thinking about their ability to reshape the world and to reshape themselves or reshape individual selves. But in, in, in the United States, and this is something that strikes you as a foreigner, this, this, this faith in one's ability to break free of um, historical and structural constraints and to, to remake oneself um, in, accordance to, in accordance with one's own fantasy or, or various images that one gets receives from the, from the media and elsewhere. Uh, that is that's very 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 striking. Um, I think it has become actually particularly pronounced in the last uh, two three decades. It's a very interesting book that came out a few years ago called The Age of Fracture. I think it is called by historian called Daniel Rogers, where he, where he spoke about this um, tendency to stop thinking about historical issues to stop thinking about structural constraints and to refashion the new liberal self or to reimagine the self as this continuously flexible thing that can always improvise and, 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 and sort of break free from everything that happened before. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a, it, I, I find it a peculiarly uh, American syndrome and I think we've seen some exaggerated versions of it in recent decades. And it also kind of gets you off the hook of actually changing anything. I mean, if you can just sort of, you know, um, certainly that, that mindset took over feminism um, in America um, and in the West in general, I think of, you know, we're, we're struggling against centuries of oppression, but all you have to do is renegotiate housework with your husband and uh, renegotiate your, um, your pay with your boss and you can just sort of fix it <laughs> that way rather than sort of organizing for, for real structural changes. It's, it's the lazy way of, of political reform. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is the sort of lean-in neoliberal feminism, you know, where you basically ne- negotiate the, the the compacts for yourself. Um, there is very little sense of a larger, wider struggle to be waged, uh, and, and, and not only for people in your class, uh, but people working at much, much lower levels. Um, so it's, I mean, I think, you know, you, you're right uh, that this kind of hyper- individualistic emphasis basically uh, undermines the possibility of any kind of collective aspiration or, or, or collective struggle. And this is this has always been a huge problem in, in the United States with its ethic, with its ideology being so connected to this, this kind of hyper-individualism. Um, it's always been much, much more difficult to have larger movements, uh, larger political struggles there. This is something, I suppose, um, people on the left have struggled with uh, right from the right from the 19th century onwards. Yeah, I've, I thought it was interesting that you that you connected the sort of Joseph Campbell um, follow your bliss thing um, with the whole Jordan Peterson and Ayn Rand view of culture. Um, which is certainly taken over the left as well. It's not just a sort of conservative thing, but especially in the creative industries um, where we just have novelists and writers who are encouraged to, you know, to tell their own stories rather than take a sort of societal viewpoint. I was reading an interview with you in, I think it was um, Prospect uh, Magazine, um, uh, where you sort of, mentioned that in the last 25 years we've had this drought of people who sort of understand um alienation um which is such a prevalent um uh experience in our culture but people are taking very individualistic views in in even how they sort of um express themselves in art yeah i think uh again art especially literature literature uh, i'm again very struck by how there are certain experiences um, that have more or less disappeared from 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 American writing until quite recently, and I think they have resurfaced in uh, different kind of art forms, such as the 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 the, the television box set, where the panoramic view of a society in the complex ways in which all its aspects intermesh, um, the way in which they're all deeply connected. Uh, very broadly speaking, a view of, 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 of society as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a mechanism, as a place in which individuals interact with each other and create, uh, 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 jointly create a, a reality, um, this is sounding too abstract, but what I'm trying, struggling to say is that the individual experience or individual experience of, of, of emotions has been highlighted uh, above this particular view of, of society in so much of um, American literature in, 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 again in, in, uh, in recent, recent decades. And I think some of it has to do with uh, a very deliberate and a very political emphasis on individual experience and turning away from larger social realities. I mean, we know now that um, 
creative writing as it was taught from the 50s onwards had a very clear political agenda there there are there, there is scholarship about this um, and the idea was to 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 really for encourage writers to focus on their individual experience and not bother themselves with larger social and and political concerns so even literature became a victim of this kind of hyper individualism as it were um, so we we lost the old kind of social narratives and and i think now people are trying to rediscover that 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 genre it's also it's also true that it's i mean because of the way in which american society is atomized and fragmented it's harder to do the social narrative there um but at the same time you know we've seen evidence of that in something like the wire um how someone who do someone who actually tries and pulls it off triumphantly a a, a vision of a society that is um that is that is profoundly broken and the ways in which it is broken and the ways in which the broken parts connect to each other i thought that was a that was a brilliant demonstration of what a uh, an artistic uh, aesthetic view like that can achieve but um i i, I feel that um you know in in in, uh, in 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 many ways the last few decades the post war decades that particular phase is coming to is coming to an end and a lot of uh, the things that we're seeing today whether it's jordan peterson or trump are a kind of oh maybe this is the maybe this is too optimistic of you um <laughs> a sort of last gasp of um the elite the the, the powerful who have been who have been entrenched who have enjoyed uh, the, the the benefits of their privilege for a very long time and now suspect it's slipping away it's all slipping away reacting um but that there is there is there is change ahead there are, are going to be many more young interesting people doing interesting things with a very different experience of the world altogether um an experience of adversity most importantly not of power not of un, uh, continuous unchallenged power and um that might produce that might produce uh, i'm not not completely certain uh, you know just creatively intellectually more exciting more exciting things forever dog this has been a forever dog production executive produced by dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio and Alex Ramsey for more original dog. podcasts please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.